Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Dangerous question. Very dangerous. I know better than to ever ask that and want an answer. But sometimes we are faced with Scripture (laughs) that asks us that second time, like, but really, how are you doing? And today, we are in Psalms again, and Psalm 6 is one of those times. The Psalms are organized in a very particular way. It's actually really complicated, so I won't bore you with it, but just know that the first book of Psalms, so Psalms 1 through 41, they're one unit, and then there's four more books after it. Within the first book of Psalms, the Psalms are grouped together in a series of movements. And the first movement is really from 3 to 8. So Psalm 3 to 8 are one movement. And Psalm 6 is like the apex of suffering and misery. And so the theme of David's suffering and his pain, his danger, it comes to kind of a boiling point in Psalm 6. And so, um, just fair warning, it's painful. It's painful. But God is in it. So I was thinking about this psalm, and as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And this is David's Humpty Dumpty moment. He's broken. And there's not really any sense that he's going to be able to be put back together again. He's completely broken. And we're going to see what he's broken by and how he responds to the fact that he's broken. Um, But let's just dive into it. Let's just read Psalm 6 together, and then we will jump into this text. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you as people who are subject to circumstances. We try and pretend that we're not. 
oftentimes especially when we come to church, especially when we come into your presence. We try to put on our best face. We try and act like we've got this, that things are going to be okay, that we're okay. But Lord, we meet here in your word, David, at the very bottom, in a place where he doesn't see that. And he's done pretending. And so he cries out to you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to meet him in that position. That even as you humbled him, you would humble us. And, Lord, that we would see the glory of your Son in our despair, in our anguish. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a heavier psalm this morning. We're going to look at the misery of David first. And then we're going to look at the glory of Christ, because that's what the Psalms are trying to show us. They're trying to bring us into an encounter with Jesus. They're trying to show us Jesus. And fortunately, that's not that hard to do, because oftentimes the New Testament writers and Jesus himself makes it explicit. He says, here's how to see me in the Psalms. And so we're, we're, we have that privilege this morning of knowing exactly what Jesus himself wants us to see in this psalm. But first, we have to start with the misery of David, because it's real. And so there's a lot of debate about what is actually happening in David's life, what is causing him so much pain and anguish, why he's using this really strong language of languishing, why he is so troubled. Like, what are the specific... Co- things that are happening in his life. Is he really sick? What's going on? But again, we've been kind of going through the Psalms in this movement of understanding that David is fleeing from Absalom, and these Psalms are describing what is going on as he's running for his life from his own son, who wants to kill him and steal the kingdom, the kingdom of God, from him, to usurp the promises of God. And so, despite what's actually going on in the occasion of David writing this, that's how we're supposed to understand it. And that immediately helps make sense of the language of discipline and the language of rebuke. Because David sees his pain, the pain that he's suffering, as a rebuke, as discipline. And so this isn't like some random illness This is something that he's experiencing that's directly connected to rebellion, to his own sinfulness. But the first verse wants us to get a taste for what kind of rebuke this is and what it feels like to receive this rebuke. So part of David's misery is that he's feeling the rebuke of the Lord, and he, it's so painful, it's so harsh, It's so miserable that he's starting to wonder, Lord, are you disciplining me in your wrath? Is this punishment for my sin? This seems more than just teaching me something, but it seems now that you are angry at me, not just what I've done, 
connecting it back to Psalm 2, it's as if David, in this moment, because of what he's going through, he's starting to wonder, oh, is it me that verse 12 is about? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. David's starting to wonder, am I the enemy? Have I had it all wrong? Maybe I'm not God's chosen servant. Maybe I'm not the anointed one. And so part of what we also experience, I think, in great distress, in great pain, is we start to question, like, what is God doing here? Am I really beloved of God? And it's a, it's a logical question. It's a question you have to ask. Because you know that God's all-powerful. You know that he can do whatever he wants. He can relieve your pain in an instant. And so when you're in this type of misery and distress, I must be forsaken. That's the only explanation. I must be forsaken. And that's what David's feeling. That is his misery. And then verse 2 starts kind of this plea. David starts to call out to God. He's saying, God, this is me. Here I am. I'm miserable. I'm languishing. Be gracious to me. So he's begging for grace. He's begging for healing, for relief. My bones are troubled. He goes on and continues to develop this. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The fours are really important in this passage. So if you look at all of the fours so far in verses 1 through 5, they tell you like the basis for David's prayer. Like, it's telling you how he is coming to God and asking for grace. Like, the basis, the foundation for it. And it's not what you expect, especially at first. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? Because I'm languishing. Because I can't take this anymore. I'm so miserable, I don't know what else to do except for to ask you to make it stop. I think sometimes when we think about how we talk to God, we're not very honest. Or at least maybe we're in an experience where we haven't um, been kind of thrust into the depths of pain so much so that you just come to the end of yourself. It's like, I've got, I've got nothing else, just stop. That's what's going on here. David isn't coming with like neat and tidy theological arguments about like, God, here is why, like, I'm, I get it. I figured out the lesson that you were teaching me in your discipline, and now I'm good so you can stop. It's not that. It's I'm languishing. The word languishing oftentimes will get applied to fishermen and to farmers and to hunters who experience a dry spell. They're languishing. They're languishing because they're not eating. 
they're languishing because their families are not eating. They are starting to see their entire world unravel and fall apart. Be gracious to me because I'm falling apart. Look at how miserable I am and be gracious to me, O Lord. That's what David's saying. The extent of his misery is body, mind, and soul, isn't it? And this is how it always is. We are one. We're united. We are embodied souls. They go together. And if you've ever experienced great suffering, you know that if you're experiencing immense physical suffering, you start to suffer great soul suffering, emotional suffering. They're connected. And it goes the other way around. If you're in great emotional distress and turmoil and pain, your body starts getting pulled into it and you suffer physically. And you see this. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. So this is a completely all-encapsulating pain and misery. He's at the end. He's at the end of himself. His doesn't know what to do. Have you guys ever been chased by something? I was thinking about this. You all have been chased by something. It's probably a bee, but you've been chased by it. Being chased by a bee is like a very short amount of terror. Being chased by your own best-trained soldiers is a different kind of terror. David's being pursued and pursued and pursued. And day and night have gone by, right? That's the rhythm of the psalm so far. It's like, at night, I cry out. At night, I sleep. In the morning, I wake up. Well, this is another day. And he's like, this is it. This is all I've got. Think about how terrifying and how that prolonged terror would just eat away at you, would just start to wear on you. He's not eating much, right? He's probably worn through his shoes completely and is just walking around the desert on rocks. He's sleeping in caves. He's not sure where the next betrayal is going to come from. There's a price on his head. The first friend to turn his back on him and turn him over to Absalom would be one of Absalom's highest paid officials in Absalom's kingdom. He's just waiting for it. Impending doom. Verse 6 and 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That's amazing. That's amazingly poignant. Why is it, I was thinking about this, I was like, dang it, I feel like I've been found out. The lowest parts of my life, when I am brought to the end, when all I can do is weep, and not like one or two tears, but the ugly crying, the pouring out your soul, where do you go? You go to your bed. You close the door. You want peace. You lay on the couch at night because your troubles have followed you into your bed. 
and you soak your couch with your tears. And then verse 7. Verse 7 requires a little bit of explaining because it's not talk. At first, it seems like he's just saying like, hey, your eyes are dry because they've cried so much. And that's probably true. But the eye in the ancient Near Eastern culture was kind of the lamp or the window to the soul. And so through the eye... Hebrews would have seen that we see, we look out, and we start to see what God is doing. We can see God working, and then it comes into us, and it feeds our soul. It gives us encouragement, and he's saying, my eye is wasting away. God, I can't see you anymore. It's grown weak my ability to discern what you are doing in this world, in my life, is weak because of my foes, because of the people that you are using to discipline me. Lord, have mercy on me. So that's the misery of David. The misery of David is very complicated, though, because that's not where the psalm ends. Verses 8 through 10 throw a complete curveball. Because all of a sudden, it's as if David like rises up and pronounces these cries for justice to be done on the people who are chasing him. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Here's why this is complicated. Reading the psalm in this context, in the context of Absalom. Okay, David, let's remind you why you're here. So remember Uriah. Remember Bathsheba. Do you... David, are you aware of how sinful you are? And you are so proud as to call down the wrath of God on the people who are punishing you for those sins? It seems incredibly hypocritical. I know for me, I'm like ambivalent about that. I don't know how to feel about that. It's like, okay, David, um, you seem to be operating from a position of indulgence to some degree. It's like grace for you, but not for them. That's what it seems like. It's complicated. And here's what I would tell you. This is why it's so important that the Psalms are not resolved in David and are not primarily about David. They're pushing ahead. They're moving us forward. Here's the other thing that I was reminded by or of as I was kind of like trying to wrestle with that is that I felt in myself like I was going to David in his position of being on his knees begging for mercy and I was like wanting to stand over him. I was like, oh, David, you don't get it. Like, really, David? 
Don't you know? I was proud. And I think we are proud. I think the human heart is proud so that when there's this kind of like disconnect between the actual pain of a sinner, yes, and our own sin, we pretend like, oh, like we can ask for God's grace, but David can't. Or if you ask for God's grace, then you shouldn't want his justice. And so I want to take us from that position of pride. And maybe you're not there. Okay. Maybe you are, though. And I found myself there. I found myself thinking, oh, like, yeah, I, wouldn't, I would never do that. I would want mercy for them, too. Yeah, I don't think so. But I, I want us to be brought to our knees. And the way to be brought to our knees is to first understand who's praying the psalm. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the one praying the psalm. And when you read it through that understanding, you will be brought to your knees. You will join David in his brokenness and in his breaking. And here's why. Because when you think of Jesus praying the psalm, right away there's problems. Rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me not in your wrath. Well, we believe Jesus was sinless. He would have no occasion to be disciplined or rebuked by his father. He would not have ever needed to pray this prayer, right? He's perfect, so why would he have to pray this prayer? It doesn't work. Clearly, I'm wrong. Jesus, when he was initiating his ministry, so he had grown up as a boy, and then the time was right for him to start his public ministry, one of the first things that he did was he stepped into the waters of baptism. John the Baptist was baptizing people, saying, flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers. It was a baptism of repentance. That's why when Jesus stepped in to be baptized by John, John said, Lord, you ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, let it be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus started to identify with his people. He was picking up the sinfulness and the sins of his people and carrying them. And here's what he knew that we are deceived by. He knew that even the repentance of my people is imperfect. It's like David. We just want the pain to stop. We don't care about the purity of our hearts in it. We just want the pain to stop. And so Jesus said, I am going to repent for them. I'm going to take this burden on myself. And he was baptized, and he was tempted, and he was tried. And he walked all of his life doing his ministry. He would go away from Jerusalem, and then he started turning back to Jerusalem. And as he's turning back to Jerusalem, 
This happens. He gets into a conversation with a number of people. And they're asking about this um, example that he gave about the way of salvation being a narrow door that not many can enter through. And they're like, okay, but does that mean that there's only going to be a few people? And they're kind of like trying to get him in a gotcha question. Like they're, they're just proud. They think that Jesus is a false prophet. They're trying to catch him up so that they can then destroy him. And he says, using this example, he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he will tell you, or he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Psalm 6, verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil. See, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, this psalm is about me, and it's about me in this way. There are going to be people who are familiar with me. There's going to be people who listened to me. There's going to be people who were around me. But were never broken, never needed me, never loved me. And to those people, there will be a day when he says, depart from me. And so you can see that there's two weepings that Jesus is holding up. There's the weeping of David in his brokenness. Nothing, no righteousness, no pretense of righteousness, just weeping and brokenness, going to God and begging for grace. There's that weeping. And then there's the weeping of the proud, the arrogant, the ones who went their whole lives thinking, hmm, Jesus is interesting. I kind of like going to church every now and then. But never were broken. Never met Jesus on their knees. And probably when they encountered broken people, had a posture of arrogance, a posture of pride, a posture of indifference. And so you see Jesus, he's appropriating this, and he's saying, this is about me. And there is a judgment like that. There is a judgment. There is a day when you will hear it said, depart from me. But guess what? It's not today. It's not yet. Notice even in the psalm, the tense. All my enemies shall be ashamed. 
future. So until Jesus comes back, until you go to meet him when you die, there's this period of opportunity for you to be broken and to meet him. The other place we see Jesus take on this psalm is in verse 3. And this is why you have to be broken in order to really have received and be resting in Jesus. You have to. That is the whole essence of the Christian faith, is that you are humbled, that you are broken, that you're in need of him, that you're not proud. And it's because of this John, chapter 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled. This is also, John, in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is starting to go back. He's starting to approach the cross. He's starting to turn towards Jerusalem. And he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose... I have come to this hour. You see how different Jesus and David are in this. David is in this hour, and he's like, God, stop. Make it go away. In fact, that wrath, you have to turn it to your enemies. That's where it belongs. And Jesus says the same words, my soul is greatly troubled. But this is why I'm here. Jesus was baptized as a sinner, lived a life around sinners, was raised by sinners, put himself under the authority of a sinful world to walk to the cross. Now, he's not at the cross yet. And so, like, we're familiar with people who are, like, imagining, like, a day in the future, and they're like, oh, yeah, like, I'll be able to handle that, no problem. Like, this is, this is tough talk from Jesus, right? It's like, okay. David, I think David, honestly, if you, if you had asked him right after he had just been faithful in the face of Saul and had shown great mercy and had been described as a, God, a man after God's own heart, if you had got David in that moment and said, hey, guess what, David? You are going to be so consumed with power and arrogance and pride that you're going to see the wife of one of your most honorable soldiers, and you're going to use your power to commit adultery to steal her away from him. And then to cover it up, to protect yourself, you're going to make sure that he's killed. I think David probably would have laughed at you. I would never do that. Christians were like that. The fact is, for many of us, your worst sins are probably ahead of you. I know that's hard to hear. Because, you know, we have a doctrine called progressive sanctification. 
And that means that we get better over time, don't we? Yes. But we are not nearly aware of the extent of our depravity as we think we are. We're, frankly, we just think that there's some things that we're just not capable of. Like, that's for really bad people. But I would never do that. David, in committing that sin, got to the extent of his depravity. And in that place of humility and brokenness, he met his Savior. He saw who Jesus was because he knew to a degree that is almost impossible to just know academically. You can only know it experientially, especially for David, the king of Israel, God's anointed. I am not him. There has to be one who's coming to do this, because I cannot do it. Lord, have mercy. And so getting back to Jesus, talking about the hour that is to come, Think about the garden. Think about his weeping over Jerusalem. Walking to the garden. Think about how he was abandoned by everybody. David still had his men with him. Jesus had nobody. Turned in by one of his own. Asking his disciples to pray with him. They fall asleep. Wrestling with the Lord in utter anguish and pain. And he has a David moment, because he's human. He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Some other way, God. Some other way. And what's going on in that moment is that there is a collision of the human will, the human instinct of self-preservation, a human desire to, with David, say, hey, in Sheol, there's no remembrance of you. If I'm dead, I can't give you praise. The human will of Jesus, which is perfect, a perfect human will, that's not sinful. It's not sinful to not want to suffer, to ask for some other way. But he hears from God nothing. Because the divine will from eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit had determined for the redemption of sinners, for mercy to be given to the miserable, for Jesus to take on the sins of the world and to walk to the cross and for them to be put to death in his death for those same people to then be raised to new life in his resurrection. And for the first time in the history of humanity, the only time since, perfect submission of the human will to the divine will. It was like Jesus rewound time, goes back into the garden with Adam and Eve, and instead of eating the fruit and disobeying God and usurping 
God's goodness and all that he had provided to Adam and Eve and grabbing on to their own will, their own desire to be their own God, to determine good and evil for themselves, Jesus lays that down and obeys perfectly. And that's what it looks like. And he brought together so perfectly the will of the Father and the obedience of a son. And the power of that work was so immense that now, in his word, he's meeting sinners and turning them into sons. And that's what he offers all of us. And that's where he has been gracious to us in our misery. That's where we see the picture of the steadfast love that is informing his listening. Verse 8, 9, and 10. The Lord has heard the sound of the weeping of Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem. The Lord has heard the plea of Jesus as he's being crucified for forgiveness of the ones crucifying him. The Lord accepts the prayers of the faithful son. And friends, when you meet him, when he meets you in your brokenness, when you meet him in his brokenness, when you see the reason that he had to endure that was for your sin, the only reason for your sin, Jesus had to walk this earth. He had to bear the cross. He had to taste death. He had to understand what the guilt of sin felt like. Your sin. My sin. and you trust him, and you receive him. You are united to him in such a powerful way that now you can pray for the coming judgment. That you can pray through Jesus, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Because an attack on you is an attack on Christ. The church, as it meets opposition, as it meets evil, the people of that church, they are the body of Christ. Jesus hears your prayers. He feels your pain. And there is a day when it will end. There is a day when you will no longer be chased. There's a day when you'll stop weeping there's a day when your eye is made to see perfectly God's plan and his glory. Until then, we come here. (laughs) We sit under God's word. We remind ourselves of this. We see him in all his power, but it's power that has come through the cross to the resurrection. And we're called to continue to trust him. And so, if you're in a position right now where you feel like, I don't know if I can take this much more, cry out to God. He hears you. Wait for him. Trusting that he's answered your prayers in what's already happened, and you will see it when Jesus returns. And if if you're not there, if you're like, I don't know if I've ever been broken, then honestly, I want to warn you. 
Like, you have got to be broken by your sin. It's there, friends. It's there. And just because it might be a little bit more hideable than the sins of somebody else, they equally brought Jesus down to this earth. They equally put him on the cross. And they will equally bring God's wrath on you. So turn to him. Because he has already taken on the wrath of sinners. And that is made yours by trusting him. Let's pray. Father, we... um, This is hard to believe. We're comfortable a lot of times. We're distracted. Lord, we are proud. We're self-righteous. We're self-satisfying. We think we're self-healing. We think that no matter what position we get into, yeah, we'll be able to recover. God, you have poured into this people And to the people here, great gifts, gifts of wealth, of intelligence, of physical ability. But Lord, those very strengths can become our hindrances. They can be impediments to seeing our need for you and experiencing it in such a way that we cry out for mercy. And we cry out for mercy because we're miserable, not because we're deserving, not because we've earned it. But Lord, we cry out for mercy. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us. That you would start to tear apart the deception, the delusion that we live and breathe. That Jesus is just a nice teacher or he said some nice things, or yeah, maybe for those people, or yeah, if I'm just part of a church, that'll be good enough, and that we receive the atonement that he has given for sinners. And also, Lord, just as powerful as that experience is, just as hopeless as David felt, I also want us to feel the heights of hope. The heights of the privilege that you have made us your children in your son. That we are joined to him inseparably. And that you see the suffering of your people. And so Lord, we ask for mercy. We ask that we would not believe lies that they are suffering because of your wrath or your anger, or your hatred, but Lord, that we would call out and trust that you are making us, and you are forming us, and molding us into the image of your son, just like you did for David. And so God, I ask that all of us, that we would see Jesus in that light, that we would know that all we can do is worship him. All we can do is follow him. All we can do is love him because he gave us everything and all we have is because of him. 
Lord, please help us to believe that. Help us to cling to that. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.